Now looky here. See, today, we ain't going on no trip. No ride, walk, stroll, visit, tour. Nah, nah, nah. Today, not even a journey. Because this is special. Special like returning the One Ring to the flames of Mordor. Special like a five-year mission to seek out new life and new civilization. Special like the prophet with scripture newborn on his tongue today on Snap Judgment from PRX and NPR. We're going on a quest. I'm Glenn Washington. Strap in. Do you know the biggest question of all? The biggest question? And don't worry, I'm gonna tell you. The biggest question of all is, who am I? The next question, of course, is how did I get here? Our own Rita Daniels accepted this challenge and she knew exactly where she had to start. Underwear, down jacket. Toothpaste. So I'm just getting ready to head up to Llama Foundation, go and do a hermitage. It's where my dad was living when he met my mother. And I was conceived at that point. So I'm headed up there to try and understand some things. Here we are, Llama Foundation. So what's our format here? I'm gonna come check on you between noon and four. Okay. I don't know if they had this system when you were last here. Uh-uh. This bowl represents the community. This rock represents you. Okay. When you feel safe and supported by the community, you just put the rock in there. And when I come and check on you, I'll take it out. Okay. If I find that this rock is not in the bowl, uh-huh. I'm going to come looking for you. I'm the rock. The bowl is the community. If you feel safe and supported, then... The rock goes in the bowl. Got it. I'll be good. Yeah. I'll be around. Yafita. Yafita. This is my door. I'm sitting in the Makbara on this mountaintop. It's this small octagon nine feet in diameter. They say, drink deeply, drink these moments in. And it's gonna be dark in a minute. I'm gonna go take a walk. On a scrub oak is this hand-painted sign. One side it says, hermit in residence, please choose another path. And on the other side it has arrows with the word Sam on it. Sufi Sam, the character onto himself, a greatly revered Sufi of the, I believe, Rahaniyat order. So here's this gravesite. He was a Westerner, but he like kind of brought it, Sufism to the West. He came up with the dances of universal peace, which was something that the hippies could really relate to. He has a really good sense of humor and he wasn't at all preachy. So this is actually a pilgrimage site. You can always walk up here. And then I'm back. Time for dinner. This is garlic grown on the land, of course. Hippies. Hmm. Who knew? Quiet. Fire would be nice. Oh these pictures hanging in the wall. And this one says, the Makbara hut was the first building built after the forest fire which ravaged Llama Mountain in 1996. John Murray built this building without nails. Oh, so there's no nails in this little building. Shooting star. I'm kind of cheating on this whole hermitage thing because my dad is coming tomorrow in a hermitage. You don't have company, but I have ulterior motives, so we'll see what happens. I'm gonna go to sleep now.
oatmeal. That's my dad coming up the trail. Here we go, here we go, here we go now. Hi! Oh, what a climb. Right? Yeah. Can you take your shoes off? Yeah, sure. It says, please do not wear shoes in the hermitages. Okay. What do you think? Oh. First impressions? Fabulous. What an awesome place for inspiration. I'm gonna set the levels, the microphone levels. I'm gonna ask questions. Good. You want to tell me who you are? Your name? I'm Steve McElmory. I'm your father. First, I wanted to ask you a little bit about Vietnam and how did you end up in Vietnam? And this was like 1960. January of 67. One of my pals had been a Green Beret. And I thought this guy was cool. His name was John Awful. Oh, God. <laughs> but he was like me. He was stocky and muscular, had a lot of testosterone. I thought this guy was awesome. I'd read a brochure. The brochure called Special Forces Guys Tiger Eggheads. What's that? Tiger Eggheads. It touted them as fierce warriors, that's the tiger part, and eggheads who were really real bright and could master radio and medic skills and engineering, demolitions, intelligence, and heavy and light weapons, foreign languages. And I went, that's my thing, man. That's what I want to do. Yeah. Plus, we were fighting communism. It had it all going on. There was that snappy green beret and those jump wings, and, you know, that was the deal. You wanted to be a tiger egghead. It was the best. I loved it. When did you ship out? December of 69. They gave us jungle-issue uniforms, and we were on a plane to uh, Cam Ranh Bay, Vietnam. It was incredibly exciting. There was the constant threat of death. It gave an added dimension to life that I'd never had before. The downside was a lot of it was disposing of dead bodies during and after battles. Um, yes. Were you in a lot of combat? Yes, I was. I was I was in 12 firefights during my tour. When you were in combat and in the trenches, did you still have that same feeling like, yes, this is so awesome, I'm fighting communism? No. I had undergone quite a transformation, largely fueled by marijuana and LSD. The whole uh, feeling of the times had really touched me. One night, I was in a trench. We were surrounded, taking fire, and I was on acid. I was thinking to myself, there's got to be a better way for people to settle their differences than killing each other. Did you stop killing people after that? I never killed anyone. I never had to shoot anyone. You had, but you had to shoot. I had to shoot. I never had to kill anyone. But you had to deal with a lot of dead bodies. Yeah, probably a thousand thousand dead bodies and I was in charge of their disposal. The enemy bodies, my crew and I would pull the bodies into a pile, pour diesel fuel on them and light it, then uh, bulldoze the remains in, into the pit. If they were Americans, we would put them in a body bag and send them out on the next chopper. Was there anything when you were in Vietnam where you would tell yourself, if I live through this, then I'm going to do X, Y, and Z? One night, we were surrounded, vastly outnumbered. Our garrison had been whittled down to about 150 men. The North Vietnamese had two regiments. What's a regiment? A Vietnamese regiment is at five to 600. Okay, so it was 1,100 to 150. Yeah. We had the high ground, but they had the arms and the men. It had been raining and raining, and it was hard to get air support. So we were on our own. How long had you been surrounded? This was day 17. They tried to bring in more people by helicopter, but we called the enemy Charlie. Charlie had the helicopter landing zone zeroed in with mortars. So the first 12 helicopters that came in were blown up. That particular night, it looked like we were, can I say We were doomed, and I was crouching behind a sandbag wall with my M16, my 45 six-shooter on my hip, thinking, this is it. It's pitch black. And I said, I'm young, I want to live, it was right from the heart. And this brilliant light comes on from overhead. This C-130 airplane with a giant searchlight had broken through the cloud cover, and uh, we knew, and Charlie knew, that it had uh, an electric machine gun on it, fired 6,000 rounds a minute. Charlie stayed in the tree line and didn't want to come out on the battlefield, because we had a kill zone that was 100 meters, and the gunner up there and the plane was... <sighs> uh, was ready. 
He said, I'm young, I want to live. Yeah. If I want to live made me ask, live for what? Live for something better than, than my selfish, self-absorbed self. To do better than just living for drugs and hookers and good times. So when you made it out of Vietnam... I finished chiropractic college, had a four-year-old son I was raising alone, and I knew that Taos, New Mexico, was my destiny. How did you know that Taos or this northern New Mexico area was your destiny? One evening, a bunch of us went off to watch a movie called Easy Rider, and they're riding their motorcycles through Taos Pueblo. It was a big crowded theater, and I said aloud, where is that place? I gotta go there. The guy sitting next to me said, that's Taos, New Mexico. Never heard of it. But boy, it registered, and I knew that's where I was going to go. So um, Josh and I came out here and moved to a commune, and then we moved to another commune. Well, how many communes were around here? Half a dozen. The hog farm up in Penasco, Reality. The Magic Tortoise. The Magic Tortoise, a couple miles down the road from here. What kind of expectations did you have? No laws, no hassles. I didn't want the constraints of life to apply to me, like accountability. Okay. <laughs> yeah, man. How's that going for you, Dad? That hasn't worked out. Uh, I hate that. Were your expectations met of hot springs and women and communes and LSD? Yes. <laughs> it was groovy. Beards and long hair. No electricity. We heated with wood stoves and passive solar. Running water? Running, no, we melted snow. There was plenty of snow. Can you tell me about how you ended up at the actual Llama Foundation? My son and I were living on some people's land right down the road here. My friend John Kimmy gave us a teepee and some poles. <laughs> and uh, Kabira Morgan shows up one day in her station wagon and very graciously said, my husband and I would like to invite you and your son to spend the winter with us at the ISC, the Intensive Study Center, at the Lama Foundation. That was a no-brainer. <laughs> what was the ISC? Lama had been eclectic and multi-denominational since its inception. A few of the residents had actually converted to Islam. The idea initially was that one religion a year would be studied there. The first year was Islam. The idea was then the Muslims would move on and another religion such as Hinduism or Buddhism would be practiced and taught there. It didn't turn out that way. It stayed Muslim for a number of years. So when Kabira pulled you and your son out of your wet, soggy, snow-covered teepee <laughs> yeah. and invited you to come live in the ISC for the winter? Did that mean that you had to become Muslim? It did. And oh. uh, yes, it did. And you were okay with that? You know, I was open to anything that sounded like it would get me out of the cold. No, Islam wasn't entirely foreign to me. So I was okay with it. I got to the Lama Foundation, and within an hour, we faced Mecca. Abdul Hai led us in Salat, in prayer. It was quite wonderful. People were reinventing themselves. Your favorite thing. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. It was good. I was enjoying this. No sex outside of marriage, no alcohol. Women keep their head covered with a scarf. Yeah, women would sit on one side of the table and men on the other. Married couples could sit together. It was quaint. I say this with respect. It was like we were transported back to the seventh century. So how long did uh, your practices of Islam last? We stayed there about 10 weeks. <laughs> I, I realized this was not my path. <laughs> I applied for a membership in the mainstream compound. What was attractive to you about the, the mainstream part of Lama? Women didn't have their hair covered. You could have sex outside of marriage. You could do your own thing. You could do anything you wanted. Did you find something here when you lived here? Distractions had been taken away from me. I was faced with me. Was that the first time in your life you were ever faced with you? Absolutely. I had no escape left. That was the gift that I took from Lama. Winter turned into spring and I met your mother. She and I hooked up. A few months later, we were pregnant with you. And um, come spring, it would be time to leave the mountain and to be with your mom, re-enter the world. And that's what happened. Um, I think that's it. It seemed like 
it seemed like we were done, Dad, but now you're saying you have a postscript. Okay, so my postscript is, in 2005, and I went to Vietnam, and I taught school. And I purposely chose northern Vietnam, because that was the belly of the beast. That's where the enemy stronghold was. Uh, the plane landed in Hanoi, and I couldn't believe it. I was, I was amazed, and it seemed so unreal in so many ways. So I start walking around the block, and the first block is a marketplace. Oh, it's rich, it's beautiful. Tamarind and dried fish and nukmom, they're very pungent. And this 12-year-old boy comes up to me with a basket of baked goods, and I was sure there was a grenade in there. And my primitive brain is pulling away, and my executive brain is going, Steve, these are muffins. But I started trembling and shaking again. And at this point, I had my back up against the storefronts, and I was edging my way sideways down the sidewalk. And I was sure that there were snipers up in the shadows of the eaves across the street with me in their sights. I was putting my head around the corner for half a second, pulling back to see if it was clear. At this point, all I could think of was I had to call in an airstrike. My mind said, there's three problems. You have no radio. There's no sortie of fast movers up in the clouds waiting for your call sign. And there's no target. The nightmares and the insomnia I'd had for, for 35 years came to an end. Really? People could not have been kinder, more gracious, more welcoming, more friendly. It was extraordinary. I had a co-worker, 23 years old, beautiful young woman, and she took me out for dinner one evening, and she said in a soft voice, May I call you Dad? I said, Yes, sure you can. She had me give her away at her wedding. Uh-uh. Yeah, and her village was way up in the mountains, off the beaten track. Well, that's cool that you got to go give this girl away at her wedding. It was, it was. I realized this was a big reason why I'd come, giving this woman away in her village home. The return to Vietnam was far more than I could have hoped for. you think that you have any kids in Vietnam? I don't know. It's possible. It is possible, yeah. <laughs> That's a pretty common thing, right? Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Can I ask you a different question? So one time my brother Josh told me that you had three sons in Texas. <laughs> I think I have one son in Texas. Um, well, one child makes more sense than three. Yeah, yeah, he's the only one I know of. Honey, I gotta run. Okay, thanks for the postscript. Oh, yeah. Okay, good to see you. Yeah. You got my number, give me a call. Thanks for sharing so much. Well, that was that. I feel relieved. One son. Not three. Hmm. Unplug. story was produced by our own Rita Daniels and the sound you heard whip it bam that sound was the sound of the gauntlet being thrown down now if you want to find out more about this story we've got pictures of the llama foundation all kinds of peace nick hippie stuff that Rita brought back go to the website snapjudgment.org now we've got some stories coming up you are not gonna believe one actually you should not ever believe because today Snap Judgment is going on a quest. Stay tuned.
Welcome back. You're listening to Snap Judgment. And at the height of the Cold War, John F. Kennedy set the United States on a singular quest to put a man on the moon. We had been beaten by the Soviets in putting a man into space and were set on proving a technological and conceptual dominance, a man on the moon. Eagle Houston, we reconnect your go for PDI, over. July 20th, 1969. You're looking great to us, Eagle. Program alarm, 12.02. Give us a reading on the 12.02 program alarm. Roger, 12.02, we copy it. What's a 12.02? I don't know. Roger, we got you, we're going at alarm. Roger, understand, go for landing. 400 feet down at nine. Forward. It's looking pretty rocky down there. Uh, switch the manual. We're uh, pegged on horizontal velocity, 300 feet down, three and a half. And Eagle Houston, we got data dropouts. You're still looking good. 200 feet, four and a half down, five and a half down, 160, 160. Program alarm. 12, 1201. We're go, same type, we're go. Nine forward, that's good. 120 feet, 100 feet. There's craters everywhere. Looks like we're getting low on fuel, Neil. 30 seconds. Okay, lights on, down two and a half. Forward. I'm gonna keep on going. Forward, kicking up some I dust. Still can't see, can't we're see the ground. Tap it. We're gonna tap it light. I'm gonna keep. Oh, Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Fate has ordained that the men who went to the moon to explore in peace will stay on the moon to rest in peace. These brave men, Neil Armstrong and Edwin Aldrin, know that there is no hope for their recovery. But they also know that there is hope for mankind in their sacrifice. Those words were the first few lines of a real speech, and we're not making this up. It was written for Richard Nixon in 1969 by William Sapphire, and it's titled, In the Event of Moon Disaster. That speech is online. It's all over, you can just do a search. It was part of a contingency plan in case Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin were stranded on the moon. Now, the first moon landing, and the way we remember it, it almost seems preordained, but back then, they didn't know it was gonna happen. As their crewmate, Michael Collins, orbited the moon, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin dropped to the surface on their ship's maiden voyage into a rocky landscape littered with craters, with gravity that was unfamiliar, untested. What if they crashed? Buzz, you okay? Yeah. You okay? I'm fine. Houston, this is Eagle. Do you copy? Are we horizontal? What's our orientation? Appears that we are horizontal. Yeah, feels like that. Houston, this is Eagle. Do you copy? I don't hear anything. Yeah, I can't tell if we're transmitting or not. What about Mike? Try him. Columbia, this is Eagle. Do you copy? That's not my computer's just reading gibberish. Are you there, Mike? Boss, can you give me a fuel reading? Uh, and I sent one fuel and oxidizers are reading zero PSI. And Wait, now it's eight PSI, and now it's four. It's going all over the place, Neil. Air pressure's dropping rapidly. Do we have a meter reading on that? Looks like seven or eight minutes till there's no air left in this thing. Okay, verify LM suit circuit 36 to 43. That's verified. Let's get these helmets on. Okay, Buck. Uh, look, we can. Oh, we got antennas down and. Not really good, is it? Okay. Yours is up. We'll put my antenna up. Okay, how do you read now? Okay. You read me all right? Yes. Okay. That sounds pretty good. Getting anything from the new? Houston, this is Eagle. Do you copy? Still nothing. Felt like we hit a crater and just spun around. Yeah, it was a really rough crater. Went into Outland Long, huh? I was busy worrying about those program alarms. Right. The hell's a 1202, right? They said we were going, and that was fine. Roger. How's the cabin pressure? That looks like we're clear. You go first, Buzz. Yeah? Yeah, you're in a better position at this point. All right. And the frame's intact. Okay. Latch is open. Okay. Here, Buzz, take my camera. Good thinking. I want to make sure we get pictures of the crash. And 
out. Okay, this is... On my right side, it looks like we're, uh... Well, we look like we're perched right up on the edge of a crater. Looks to me about 110, 120 feet in diameter. Here, come on. Grab my hair. Okay, there you go. What a sight. It's just magnificent desolation. Hard to know where to go. Yeah, it looks like the ladder's down. Probably just slide down the side. Roger. Okay, I'm gonna step off the LM now. Okay. All right, Buzz, just watch yourself. I'm gonna come down. Hey, Neil. What? We're on the moon. Surface appears to be very fine grain. Just like a fine powdered, sandy, thin. I can, I can pick it up loosely with my toe. It's actually no trouble to walk around. Yeah, I agree. Hey. Neil, look at this. Look at what, do you notice what the dust is doing? When, uh, I, when I kick the dust, look at that. It's like a ripple. It just radiates out there. Look at that. It does exactly what my foot does. It's incredible. All right, let's assess the damage on the lander. Roger. It looks like we, uh, we kicked up a lot of dust coming in. There's some scorching on what looks like hard rock. The ejector kept us from rolling into that crater. I'm gonna take a photo of this. I count three legs of the eagle missing. Radar and S-bands are both heavily damaged. I don't even see the VHF. Uh, sense stage looks intact. Yeah, but there's no way to launch properly in this position. We crash into those boulders. Yeah, or worse. I'm gonna move a little slower here, just Watch me so I don't slip on the... Neil? You gotta see this. What? Uh... Good lord. The fuel cell. Exhausted our fuel supply. <laughs> Exhausted's one word for it. Guess we're grounded. We've still got two hours of air left. Let's initiate the geological survey. Great idea, Neil. It's part of the mission, Buzz. I suggest we get the radio working. The radio's dead, Buzz. And we could describe the crash Buzz. and tell them what happened and say goodbye. The radio's dead. We just have one final goodbye to the wife and kids. That's all I want to do. Right you now. saw how scorched the casing God, out. yes, okay. You know, we have the flag, Buzz. We should plant that. Sure. I'll help you plant the flag. Yeah, this is a good spot. If I can just keep turning it in there a little more. There's not much give there. Yeah, it's you know just what? Not it keeps sand. coming. Yeah. Yeah, the problem is, is I can't. It's so solid. There we go. There we go. Yeah, there's a little telescoping rod that comes out at the top here to hold the flag out. Oh, doesn't go all the way out. Look at that. It sort of droops at the end of there. That's unfortunate. Looks good from here. It's certainly something I would salute. Oh, oh, whoa, 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 okay. There it goes. Pick that up there. You ready? I can see my reflection in your visor. Here we go. Sort to capture the spirit of the American astronaut. Stuck on the moon, two hours to live. It gives a big thumbs up. last a long time. I don't think it's going to be developed anytime soon. Now, Apollo 12 is going to go up? Yeah, after this, I'd be surprised if there's any space program at all. I bet by the year 2000, they'll have a base up here. Maybe they'll build some memorial up here for us. That reminds me. Oh, right, I forgot. Yeah, we had a memorial. Yeah, here. Here it is. Here lies a memorial to Ed White, Gus Grissom, and Roger Chafee.
Ed was, he was my neighbor. Yeah, Ed was a good guy. Yeah, he was. Here, I got a couple of medallions here for uh, those cosmonauts. Yuri Gagarin, here you go. Here's your spot on the moon. Vladimir Komarov, you now have a place on the moon. Rest in peace. How many people do you think they'll bury up here by the time they're through? However many it is, it's a drop in the bucket when you consider the entirety of mankind. We walk back to the LM, they'll find our bodies more easily. Well, our footprints will be here for the next 10 million years, so I think they'll find us. Yeah. It's a shame to just leave footprints behind. Why should we, why should our legacy just be footprints? Let's write something. Let's write something in the dust here. You know, it's like uh, I recently helped my friend pour some concrete into his backyard for a porch. And we, had his kids write a little message there. It was very... It's gonna be there forever. What do you think we should leave? What's the message? I don't know, Buzz. I mean, look around. The scorched rock. The LM's all over the place. We'll be here. The crash light speaks for itself. There's nothing more I can say about it. Yeah, well, I'm feeling kind of winded anyway, so... You know, I've crashed so many times. Yeah, I've always managed to squeak by, but... When I graduated from flight school at 220 feet, 13 forward, and 11 forward, and it was... Five and a half down, nine four, twenty feet right there. Three and a half down, hundred and twenty feet, hundred down, three and a half down, four, five, six, seven. Buzz, 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 snap out of it. What? I'm fine. I'm fine. I better. Oh, I better lay down here. Yeah, good idea. Sit down. It's really, really pretty up here. God will find us on the moon. Yeah, I think God will find you. Yeah. Do you ever wonder why we're here? What we're doing up here? With the space program? Yeah, like... What are we doing up here? What does this all mean? That's hard for us to decide. Yeah, you're right. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Fate has ordained that the men who went to the moon to explore in peace will stay on the moon to rest in peace. These brave men Neil Armstrong and Edwin Aldrin know that there is no hope for their recovery. But they also know that there is hope for mankind in their sacrifice. These two men are laying down their lives in mankind's most noble goal, the search for truth and understanding. They will be mourned by their families and friends. They will be mourned by their nation. They will be mourned by the people of the world. They will be mourned by a Mother Earth that dared send two of her sons into the unknown. In their exploration, they stirred the people of the world to feel as one. In their sacrifice, they bind more tightly the brotherhood of man. In ancient days, men looked at stars and saw their heroes in the constellations. In modern times, we do much the same. But our heroes are epic men of flesh and blood. Others will follow and surely find their way home. Man's search will not be denied. But these men were the first, and they will remain the foremost in our hearts. 
For every human being who looks up at the moon in the nights to come will know that there is some corner of another world that is forever mankind. Moon Graffiti was written and produced by Jonathan Mitchell. The story editor was Hilary Frank. Matt Evans played Neil Armstrong. Ed Herbstman was Buzz Aldrin. And that speech at the end was written by William Sapphire for Richard Nixon in 1969, performed here by John Ottavino. It's part of a new radio fiction project from Jonathan Mitchell and the American public media team called The Truth. Now, first the moon. And after the break, we're going to the very top of the world. Why? Because that's how we do. Snap judgment, baby. Stay tuned. Today, you know what's being robbed? Adventure, my friends. You ask these kids today, you ask them, you say, look, I want you to find out something you don't know. Well, what do they do? They, they start typing with their little fingers and their little Googling and stuff like that. No, 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 not today. Not on the snap judgment, see? When you really, really, really want something, you gotta get out there and do it yourself. Larry is my cousin. Larry is the prototypical black sheep. Everybody has a Larry in their family. He's the guy who had a fist fight with the rabbi. That's Larry for you. I hadn't heard from him in 15 years. Phone went off, flipped it open, and Larry was calling basically out of the blue to ask me to save his life. And he said, I'm calling because I'm dying and I need you to come to China with me to get a kidney for me. There was one glitch, he said. What he was asking for was, in fact, <coughs> and here he coughed, illegal. I really did not think it was possible. And I had moral qualms. You know, I heard all these rumors, religious dissidents being taken prisoner and criminals themselves being obliged to give up their organs against their will. I heard all these stories. So my first, first, first reaction was, no way. But very, very quickly, and I think this would happen to you too, and I think it would happen to most everybody, once you're confronted with a life and death situation, everything falls into perspective. Larry was so disgusted being on a list behind 80,000 other Americans, 14 of whom die every day waiting for a kidney, and the idea of waiting seven to 10 more years, he said, listen, not to uh, put too much of a trip on you, but I'm gonna kill myself. I'd pretty much made up my mind to go and do whatever he wanted, which was to go to China the following Sunday and get a kidney. Because China had been the largest um, harvester of organs. There was another reason why China, but I didn't find that out till we got there. Uh, it was because he'd been corresponding on email with this uh, mail order bride from cherryblossoms.org for two years. And he said to me, wait till you meet her, Dan. She is five foot one, she weighs 115 pounds, she's very petite. So when I got there, I made the acquaintance of this very large woman dressed in a fur coat, and she was the mail-order bride. Pretty soon I found out that uh, the black market did not advertise in the Yellow Pages. I started asking waiters and asking cab drivers and asking doormen of strip clubs and just saying, does anybody know of a lightly used kidney I can, I can connect with? And it looked like it wasn't going to happen. We were scheduled to fly home when something amazing happened. 
There's a synagogue actually for Jews who are on assignment in Beijing and every Friday night they get together sort of informally at this little temple. So I decided to go to the synagogue in the middle of the service. I stood up, I apologized for interrupting uh, the service and I said, but listen people, I am here on a mission of life and death. I realize it's a controversial subject, but my cousin is dying. I'm just going to ask you right out if any of you could share with me any connections you might have to a healthy kidney. Well, it was sort of a stunned silence, as you can imagine. One woman, she sort of sidled behind me, and she proceeded to lay out for me a plan whereby she would contact this Dr. X, this mystery surgeon, way out in the west of China, and if I could get Larry to this city within 24 hours, she would try to hook me up. I went and picked up Larry and his mail-order bride, and we all pushed into a cab and took the most harrowing cab ride of our lives. Well, we got to the hospital, and it was very, very empty, except for these Saudi Arabians and other Middle Easterners who were playing badminton in the hallways day and night. They were waiting for organs. Some of them had been there for three and four and five and six months. We sat tight for two months, me playing badminton with the Pakistanis, Larry being sort of a celebrity to all the nurses. They would giggle when he walked by. I felt he was in very good hands. I mean, this was expert care, the latest in scientific uh, Western technology combined with a 2,000-year-old history of Chinese medicine, acupuncture, bare bile. Dr. X traveled the globe giving lectures on how to do kidney transplants. Because of the superabundance of organs in China, he had actually performed more surgeries than any American surgeon. I was disquieted by the idea that they were kidnapping all kinds of innocent people and taking their organs against their will. So I said in this interview with Dr. X, can you please tell me who the donor is? At which point, Dr. X turned red with anger, and he turned to me and he said, bad, bad criminal, I would kill him 200 times. And he said, well, he was 34 years old. He invaded a home to do a home robbery. The middle-aged woman was there in the house. He killed her. He killed her father, the frail old man, and killed the infant. His attitude was, one good thing is coming out of this criminal's life, and that is the donation of his organs. After two months, we got a phone call at 10 o'clock one night from the hospital translator, and she said, Okay, organ is ready. Get patient prepared. We are going to have surgery in two hours at midnight. So this army of, you know, white-frocked nurses came in and started shaving his pubic hair and painting his abdomen. And the last thing I saw was he was waving goodbye in the elevator and going upstairs to get his kidney, at which point... I noticed an ambulance in the driveway of the hospital and I asked my translator, could that be the ambulance for the donor? And she said, that's the donor then. He was on life support with a bullet in his head and he was elevated up to the top floor where his organ was removed at the same time that Larry was elevated up ready to receive the organ. You know, the kidney is a miraculous organ. As Mary, his mail-order bride, said to me, why do you think we have two? One is forgiving. And when we got the word that the operation was a success, we both chanted, long live Larry, long live Larry. Larry is off his dialysis, he has his life back. Dr. X gave Larry his limo with his driver to bring him to the airport. So Larry went home in high style, I went home in normal style. The last person I imagine I'm seeing in China as my plane lifts off is the prisoner begging for his life back. Now please, please understand, we here at Stamp Judgment do not encourage the purchase of black market kidneys from China. But there is a link to Daniel Isa Rhodes' book chronicling his experience on our website at snapjudgment.org. A quest can sometimes pass from generation to generation. Sometimes you follow in your father's footsteps, but every once in a great while, every once in a while, you get to walk side by side. My dad and I met up in Kathmandu, 
and the next morning we took a tiny twin-engine prop plane to a village called Lukla. It's about halfway up the 100-mile trail to the Everest base camp. We're at about, landed at about 9,000 feet. It's about 200 Sherpas here waiting behind the barbed wire fence, hoping to get work carrying people's bags up. But there's a ton of tourists and trekkers. 500 tourists fly in here every day now. When my dad first did this hike, there weren't really any other trekkers, just expedition groups trying to summit Everest. 40 years ago, uh, you didn't know if a plane was coming. There was no radio communication. You would hear the plane coming, the sound of the engine, and then you would all of a sudden hear the sound of the engine fade away, meaning that the plane had to go back to Kathmandu because it couldn't land in Lukla, and you had no idea when another plane on another day would be coming. We started walking, mostly uphill, through villages, and past yak trains. My dad walks slowly with a little wooden cane. He carries a tiny leather satchel instead of a backpack, and he's constantly clearing his throat because he has a damaged esophagus. He takes a big hike almost every year, but when he asked me to walk the Everest Trail with him, he said, I think it may be our last chance. <laughs> we stop in stone guest houses where Sherpas teach trekkers folk songs. And we order lentils and potatoes and fried bread. This was not the scene when my dad first came here. And, and in fact, there were no places to stay either. So uh, they, they did have a few tents, and I happened to run into the Argentinian Everest expedition, which had failed in its attempt to climb Mount Everest. This year, uh, of course, there are many, many, many more Western tourists on the Everest trek. As we climb higher towards our goal, the Mountainside Monastery, the weather is getting worse. It's cloudy and foggy and cold. My dad's not feeling well, and we can't see any mountains. It's hard to pretend we're not disappointed as we climb through the fog. We arrive at the monastery after dark, drink some hot lemon tea, and hope in the morning the clouds will clear. It's 6 a.m. Tengboche Monastery. It's hard to tell, but it looks like it's still cloudy. We get no views. Climb out of the sleeping bag. It's freezing. And walk up to the monastery. The monks will be praying, try and meditate on what lesson I'm supposed to learn here. I'm sure it's supposed to be something about the journey. Okay, Dad, what do you do when you fly 26 hours, hike six days? for a view of Mount Everest and you get there and it's fogged in. It's a disappointment, but the journey is still unlike any other journey on the earth and and sometimes there's a reward at the end of the journey and sometimes it's just the journey. And then, as we sat on that ridge, coming to terms with missing out on our Everest, the clouds began to break apart. Whoa! Look at those! Oh, it's gorgeous! What happened? The gods have smiled upon <laughs> us. The veil lifted and the mountains are appearing and peeking through and, and it's absolutely thrilling and gorgeous. Do you think that's because you passed the test and the mountain gods knew you got it? No. That story was produced and lived by our own Anna Sussman. Now, Snap Judgment was produced by myself, but never alone. 
never alone. Somebody bring out the dancing yaks for the uber producer, Mr. Mark Ristich. Rita Daniels knows when you lie. Stephanie Fu knows when to lie. And Anna Sussman never told a lie. Will Urbina wonders who lied. And our new intern, Miss Mitzi Mock, lies in wait. And if you see some bloody footprints leading up to that damn dark cellar in the old Thompson mansion, whatever you do, do not call the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. That would be silly and potentially dangerous. Try 911 on the Pizza Man. Many thanks to the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Snap Judgment is inspired by Youth Speaks because the next generation can speak for itself. YouthSpeaks.org. And have you ever wondered what would happen if the public and the radio got freaky? Well, I'll tell you what. It's going to happen like PRX, the public radio exchange, putting the public in radio, if you know what I mean. PRX.org. Now, even though this is not the news, not the news. In fact, you get climbed to the top of the mountain, receive the Ten Commandments, come down, find your people worshiping the golden calf as the idol of a foreign god, and still, you would not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is NPR. <laughs>